This is Stories for the Future, a podcast on a mission to get you excited and optimistic about a future full of fantastic opportunities. My name is Veslomöjklavnesberke, and I'm trying to figure out how we can all live good lives, have exciting jobs, and at the same time take good care of the planet and everyone living here. I want to unlock the superpowers of everyday people so that together we can co-create a future we're all excited about. So come join me on this journey. The future is up to us and I know that we can make it a good one. Welcome. It has been a really long break for this podcast. I never intended it to be this long, but so many things have happened during the last year. And when you first break a routine, it is oh so hard to get back. (laughs) And I'm sure you have noticed this for yourself. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about everything, all the projects, personal and professional, that has made Stories for the Future move back in the queue of priorities, except for one of them because this is highly relevant for the topic of this podcast. As I say in the intro, I have used this podcast to look for the intersection between a good life, an exciting job and a happy planet. And that goes for myself, as well as looking into how other people figure this out. And when it comes to the exciting job part, I have made a change for myself during the last few months. I have moved from working mainly as a sustainability consultant, among other projects, to something I have thought about for five years or so and talked about for at least two years. I want to help people make that complicated, frustrating, nerve-wracking, super exciting transition from a job that no longer feels meaningful to a new career path with maximum positive impact on the future. It is my strong belief that it is time we all think about how we spend our working days. We spend so much time at work during our lifetimes and if we don't use that time in a way that gives us joy but also has a chance to make a positive difference for people and the planet, well then I think it is a huge waste of a lot of precious time and resources. I'm going to have a short separate episode where I share more about this work I have just started, but if you want to know more right away, you can go to my website bycause.co, that is b-y-c-a-u-s-e dot c-o, to learn more. This work is so interesting and so rewarding and I'm very, very happy I finally made the jump. Now to this week's episode, a great one to kick off this new season and I really hope you enjoy it. I have been waiting a long time for this and I'm so looking forward to this conversation. My guest today is Maria Evans. As quite a few guests earlier or before her, I found Maria in the Portfolio Collective, this fantastic community that I'm a part of for people with portfolio careers. You can check it out if you're curious about this. I will put a link in the show notes. Maria works as a coach, mentor and trainer and her focus area is so relevant for me and I 
think also for a lot of listeners on this podcast. Maria helps women be more confident. She wants them to get the jobs they deserve and then she also teaches them how to stay in those jobs despite of life's ups and downs. She's also a doctor of philosophy in the topic of Shakespeare and we could actually have an entire episode just talking about that because that makes me so curious. <laughs> but that's up to you, Maria. Welcome so much to Stories for the Future. Thank you. Thank you. So happy to have you here. And first of all, tell us where you're based. So I'm based in Oxford um, in the UK. I used to live in London um, and we moved here about seven or eight years ago. London still feels like home, but I'm very happy to have Oxford as my second home. Yeah, you should be. I, I think that Oxford is probably one of my favorite cities in the whole world. <laughs> and I, I just I can picture myself studying Shakespeare, for instance, just walking inside those lovely university buildings. And it's a, it's a beautiful city, I think. It is. It's just a bit too quiet for certainly one of my oh. teenagers. So yeah, okay. They prefer the, London's, you know, got a lot more buzz and noise to it. Yeah, so. I can see that. First of all, I would really like to just jump in and I will, I would love for you to talk about a very uh, beautiful, I would say, metaphor that you are using in your work, which is the image of a working woman as a swan, appearing calm on the surface, but paddling like crazy underneath. Could you just explain a little bit about what you mean, what you mean with this metaphor? And, and maybe also, I can imagine that it's uh, sort of based on a true story. <laughs> maybe your own <laughs> very much um so yes I think so many of us um grow up aspiring to perfectionism to projecting an image to the rest of the world about how we think we should be rather than how things actually are um and certainly for me and I've observed this in in lots of the women that I coach you know I felt as if I was doing a brilliant job of coming across as calm and professional and everything was perfect. But beneath the surface, I was paddling away furiously just to try and keep that perfect presentation going. And I think, I think depending on your life circumstances, you can keep it going. What for me, ultimately, I mean, there's a, so I had burnout twice and I think that's mm. where you realize this is unsustainable. And both time it, it was because I was trying to do too much. And the second time was after having children when, you know, there's only so much you can throw at a life and carry on trying to be perfect. You can just about, as I say, I think do it when you're purely focusing on work, but you cannot be perfect at work and be a perfect mother. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. And I think once I, once I'd been through those experiences, I inevitably reflected on them and started to do a lot more research around why I felt the need to be doing that. And that started my journey towards becoming the coach that I am, because actually the more I reflected on what had happened to me, the more I saw it happening to other people, the angrier I was about mm. the expectations we have of ourselves, that society has on us, um, and, and that those expectations are disproportionately placed on women. Yeah, 
So why do you think this is? Why is it so different uh, for for men? Do you think? So, um, uh, so many reasons. I mean, so the, all the research suggests that whilst obviously some of these characteristics absolutely appear in men, women are more likely to be people pleasing, more likely to be perfectionist, um, more likely, sadly, to suffer from burnout, more likely to suffer from imposter syndrome. And I think inevitably a lot of it is rooted in our education systems. Um, so what we know is that girls typically do very well at school because they are very well conditioned by society to behaving well. Yeah. And that is rewarded well at school. So it's really, really easy, I think, to be a perfect girl at school. The business world doesn't doesn't value those things. The business world values people who take risks, um, who can take the, you know, the, the knocks and everything that happen in normal everyday business life. And you see so many women who come through who've done really, really well at school, and suddenly it's not working for them in the in the business world. Um, and they're still trying to get those perfect grades, because that's what's worked for them in the past. And they struggle really, really um, you know, so very much when they come across criticism or they're encouraged to take risks or maybe they can't take those risks and whatever. And boys who typically don't do as well in school are used to people, you know, telling them that they're rubbish or whatever. Mm. Um, they're used to those knocks. And so if they hit criticism, it's just like water off a duck's back. Yeah. Whereas women take it that much more personally, so it's a, it's a whole host of things rooted in how boys and girls are brought up and how our education systems operate, and how that is so totally at odds with how the business world operates. Yeah. So one one part is the education system, but another part, and I've been wondering a lot about this myself because, like, the just the the way that a career is supposed to be or like our work life uh, in combination with family and kids and everything it's kind of not working so we met in the portfolio collective as i said yeah. uh, so you also have uh, some sort of portfolio career as i do like not a normal a4 job and i have been thinking that I don't know how I could go back and make it work. So something is kind of wrong. <laughs> yes. I hear that a lot, actually. That um, So I do a lot of research on women and confidence. Mm. And the women who struggle least with confidence after having a family typically tend to be the ones who work for themselves. So there they, they can adapt they can make the flexibility work for themselves better mm. i'm not suggesting it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination but you and i know how messy lives are even before we have children but if you throw children into the mix or if you throw other caring responsibilities into the mix those things do not go predictably well you know there will always be the call saying such and such is ill or such and such has had a fall or you need to come now. Yeah. And that flexibility for our messy lives historically has not been in the traditional workplace. Freelancers 
have, as I say, had a little bit more room for manoeuvre, for hiding the messiness because they can make it up in other parts of, of, of their day or their week. I'm not suggesting it's easy, but I think it's easier to adapt to, to, to the things that happen during, you know, a nine to five or whatever. Yeah. So um, I think... I think one of the things, though, that I do see as promising, if I look back at the 18 years since I first started having children, it really was a question of absolutely everything got brushed under the the carpet. I had a miscarriage between my two children, and that just wasn't talked about at Mm. all. And now there's support for that. Um, There's far greater shared co-parenting. There's far more, you know, menopause is another subject that I feel very passionate about. There's far greater support for that. So all of those things that make up us as human beings, um, there is more support for, there is more talk about. So I, I do see that as being more promising. But like you, Certainly, you know, I look back at what I had to live through when I first had my children and the way I had to pretend that they didn't exist. And I, it feels barbaric, really. <laughs> sort of, um, you know, how can that be, you know, in the 21st century that, that we're supposed to pretend that there's just this bit of us that comes to work yes. when we're a whole person with, with all that that entails? Do you see it changing in any way? I read about your your that you talk about these things that you mentioned, like um, menopause, motherhood, grief, illness, all that. And none of the places or companies I have worked for, I, I can't ju- I can't even imagine like having a conversation about menopause over the lunch table. You know, is it changing or? I I think it is. I think um, sadly. Some of these things are driven by finance and the law. So actually, um, because one in 10, so if we talk just about the menopause, one in 10 women leave the workplace because of the menopause. Some of those women who have left have then filed for discrimination, Mm -hmm. um, constructive dismissal, and have won cases which have been very, very costly. And so I think increasingly for two reasons so kinder organizations are realizing something's got to change i mean there's been a big shift particularly around menopause and so kinder organizations are going we've got to change and so are bringing in menopause policies and there's other organizations are going we have to change because otherwise it's going to cost us a lot of money so the policies are starting to be put in place but we know that policy doesn't necessarily change a culture. So it's a it's a first step in the organisations are, you know, covering themselves or beginning the process of looking after the messiness of all of our lives. I don't yet know the extent to which that changes to the point where people feel that they can talk openly about some of these things we have no option but to talk openly about pregnancy you can't Mm. you can't hide that no but everything else I don't know I mean it's been a while since I've been in a full time in a workplace and I don't know whether people feel that they can talk about their mental well-being that they can talk about menopause that they can talk about you know, a parent being ill, dying and so forth. I think it really, really varies depending on the culture of the organisation and how mm. 
we talk a lot about psychologically safe, you know, how psychologically safe people feel in organisations. And that's about culture, that you can't change mm. that by just creating some policies. No, that's true. But it should be a part of like everything we talk about around sustainability and the inner development goals is called like all it's it's all connected all the different um, skills and things we need to develop in order to to uh, fix the, the kind of the outer problems and and we're also you know lots of organizations are really missing a trick by not making themselves more open to people from very very diverse backgrounds um we know for example that gender diverse organizations outperform mm. the alternatives mckinsey's been reporting on this for a number of years um, and it's the same for all forms of diversity um, diversity enriches the thinking of an organization it makes them more aware of their client base because you know their clients might be representing all of those forms of diversity so if organizations are not making it easy for people to stay in work, whether they've had children, whether they're going through the menopause, whether they're caring for elderly parents, you know, whatever it might be, mm. if they have a disability, then ultimately those organizations are putting themselves at a disadvantage. Yeah, they are. Absolutely. So so I, I would love to talk a little bit about uh, your work with confidence, because for me, it's it's very much related to, yeah, you know, what you mentioned about the imposter syndrome, stepping out of your comfort zone, basically as well. And for me, talking to both men and women, I would say it's often um, this thing about the comfort zone, which is a huge, huge topic. And my experience through the last years when developing my own business and things is that if I want to accomplish the things that I want to do and have the impact I want to have, I need to push my comfort zone. So it's, and it's very, just this podcast is a very good example. Uh, it actually started with a blog and just, you know, pressing that button and putting out a blog post was just terrifying. And then you just take the small steps and mm -hmm. having the first podcast in Norwegian first and then, oh, do I dare do it in English? And then you just widen it, I guess, is is a better word. Mm -hmm. so, so what is your experience when you work with women? And yeah, what kind of advice do you give them when it comes to so, this? Yeah, so I think, you know, absolutely. We know that learning happens when you're pushed outside of your comfort zone. Mm. It's, a, it's really important, though, to recognise that the, the, the comfort zone is a zone that starts and ends. And it's really important that you, you know, you, you start entering your comfort zone. But we equally know that burnout and breakdowns can happen if you push yourself so far out of your comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. So again, it's one of those things where it's about balance, where it's mm. about taking on a bit of a stretch that is helping you to develop and learn, but not so much of a stretch that it leaves you utterly stressed, you know, risking burnout and so forth. But absolutely, and it, in, and it is, again, it is one of those things which I wonder is gendered because what we know, there's the, you know, the classic piece of research, I think by HP years ago about applying for jobs and how... Say, for example, you had a, a, a man and a woman with exactly the same level of experience, say 60% of what they need to apply for a certain job. 
Mm. And the research that HP did, if it was HP, I think it was HP, was that the man at that point went, I've got 60%, I'll busk the rest mm. and I'll apply. And the women would go, I'm not going to apply for that type of job until I've got 100%. Yeah. Or, you know, way, way closer. So women are holding themselves back from being pushed into their, you know, pushed out of their comfort zone. So their comfort zones, I wonder if, you know, I'm hypothesizing here, but are actually a lot smaller mm. um, as a result. And of course, you know, they're, they're therefore missing out on their own potential to develop, to get promotions, to get um, other jobs and so forth. And I think that's one of the things that really, really upsets me um, around women and confidence is some of it is the system, some of it is patriarchy, some of it is all of that. But a lot of the time it's women getting in their own way, women holding themselves back, not being willing to be pushed out of their comfort zone mm. um, to take that little bit of a risk. Um, and and that has, you know, really significant implications for their careers. Do you think this is due to the, is it the, is it the fear of uh, what other people think? Or is it uh, the fear of failure? Is it? I think, I think fear of, fa so again, so as I say, women, apparently according to the research are more risk averse um and i think fear of rejection is mm. higher um i think women are in our society more conscious of what people think about them because we are just typically scrutinized more in all of the media what is that person wearing yeah. you know what are they saying and so forth women get the i, I saw a something on social media yesterday where they did an exercise of asking male athletes the same questions that would be asked of female that have already been asked of female athletes, you know, go on, do a twirl in that outfit or, you know, all sorts of things that you cannot imagine ever, ever being asked of a male athlete, but that have been asked of female athletes. Mm. So I think when you are under greater scrutiny, you do feel that you are going to be judged more. Um, and so, yes, that does that does make it a bigger leap mm. uh, put yourself out there yeah interesting uh, so uh, I, I was wondering, I mentioned in, in the beginning that you're a doctor of philosophy. <laughs> I thought that was so great. I wish I was that. Uh, so could you just uh, share a little bit about your own uh, journey, your career journey? Because I now when I work with people and try to help them uh, in their career pivots uh, for people who want to have more impact in their careers and maybe make a quite a radical shift. So, so how, how was your journey and, and why, why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there's, there's two things I'd like to say about that, because I'm very aware that despite the fact that I come from really solid working class stock, my father was a builder, my mother left school at 15. I know that because of my schooling, I think I come across as being quite posh mm. so probably would think people would think oh well that's exactly the sort of person who would go and do a PhD I was the first person in my um, entire family to finish a university qualification so a cousin went to university but didn't finish so it is not my background at all so when I was growing up I absolutely thought you know people who had doctorates well they're not they're not like me 
there's no way that that's something that I would do. And I bombed my A-levels. So even more so, I didn't think that that was, that, that was not what I intended to do. Um, but then because of a series of not completely random, but certainly not strategic, you know, there was no strategic goal from me aged 18 to the point when I did a PhD in my early 50s. It was a very circuitous route. It was not part of the career plan. And ultimately, the biggest reason I did a PhD, all right, by then I'd got a degree under my belt and I'd got a master's under my belt. So, all right, I had put things into place that enabled that to happen. And I had a very, very close working relationship with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I went to them to say, you know, would you be interested in helping me do a PhD in the teaching of Shakespeare? Because I had a history with them, mm -hmm. because I had, by that point, the um, necessary qualifications, we explored that and I was able to do a PhD. But I will be very, very honest with you. The real reason I wanted to do a PhD at that particular point was I was freelance. We had a change of government in the UK in 2010. The organisations I was working with as a freelance disappeared almost overnight. I still had very young children and I wanted to be able to do something from home. Mm -hmm. And a PhD, when, I, when my freelance work dried up, a PhD enabled me to stay at home with my children. So it was not part of a strategic career plan. It was a pragmatic decision based on where my children were at. And I think so many working women end up doing those those things of yeah. just, just making the work fit around what else is going on for them. And I would hate people to look at me and think, wow, look at what she's achieved. She's a doctor in this. And, you know, that's what I set out to do. It really, I tell people I have an accidental PhD. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting story. And, um, yeah, but did, did you enjoy it? I, I mean, until I wrote it up, yes. I loved doing yeah, the research. Yeah. I loved being given permission to go away and read books and get totally immersed into it. I loved interviewing the teachers um, who I interviewed as part of the research. The last 18 months of writing up was unbelievably awful. I was then working part-time at the same time and still bringing up relatively young children. And it, you know, it nearly killed me. So, yeah. um, so yes, that bit was not was not great, but the rest of it I did really, really enjoy. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And that was uh, it. You you inspired me. Now I got thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and Oxford, you know, beautiful university. <laughs> okay, so I have I have a couple of more questions for you, and and one of them is, I've read or I'm I'm in this course at the moment about futures thinking at Coursera it's really really good uh, and in that course they talk about something they call the VUCA, the VUCA world which I don't know if you heard about it it's uh, it stands for volatility uncertainty complexity and ambiguity and that's kind of the the world that we're living in at yeah. the moment I think it stems from the army or something okay. uh, a term they use there uh, so it's, it was just a a way to explain um, how it is hard for us to 
to see into the future and everything is so uncertain. Mm -hmm. So I read also that you, you talk about resilience uh, for instance and adaptability and and i i think a lot about this when it comes to people my age and well younger and older as well but in 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 working life and everything that is changing for instance also when it comes to technology ai everything mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. how do you approach that with your clients um being adaptable and resilient yeah so i so the 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 word that i really really major on that i don't i don't think gets talked about enough within all of these is about acceptance mm. because i think a big part of being resilient um of being resilient um and being able to adapt actually is really accepting who you are what's going on in the world that you can't control and then therefore focusing your energies on what you can control um so i i really try and encourage the the clients that i work with to be incredibly kind to themselves you know we none of us when we were growing up could have anticipated the way things are, have been panning out so you could spend a lot of time and energy kicking against how things are um and actually that's time and energy that you will not get back so if we can accept all of that that frees up the time and energy that we do have to look at well what what do i need to learn what do i need to adapt to put my energy into that so it's putting your energy into forward facing activities um, rather than, as I say, being caught up in why didn't I do that? Or why is the world like that? Why is this politician like that? Why is the weather like this? Why climate change? Yeah. All of those things. Whilst obviously recognising areas which we can change. Um, so it's really important within acceptance to sort of say, well, actually, is this something that I, that I do have some agency over? Can I be an activist, you know, on a small scale or on a large scale or whatever hmm. so i think for me resilience and adaptability are go hand in hand with with acceptance um hmm. so that you're incredibly focused on on what you can change yeah that's a big thing because we're we're fighting a lot against the things that we can't change yes yeah yeah, yeah. so true yeah, yeah. Okay, so we are approaching the end there, but I saw that you have a course coming up. So uh, please share about that. Okay, so I've been specialising um, in coaching women around confidence since the first since the pandemic, so since the first lockdown. I did some coaching then, um, and it became really, really obvious that women were being disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Um, and that women's confidence, which was already not great, had been hit really, really hard. And so I became really, really passionate about supporting women with confidence because of that thing of, you know, without confidence, women just so often hold themselves back. And we need women to be coming forward and making sure that we do have those gender diverse um, organizations it's better for organizations it's better for the planet you know it's better on so many levels it's better in terms of role modeling for our children if women have the confidence um, to be able to take their fair share 
um, of, of positions of power um, and so forth. So I really um, focus in on this area and I either coach people individually or occasionally I run group courses and I'm really, really excited about the next one. So I'm running a seven week course um, called Calmly Confident. And I have this other sort of bugbear of mine about not, it's not about trying to get women to adopt typically male characteristics it's not about being aggressively confident or trying to up your testosterone levels or you know whatever it's about finding an authentic confidence that sits comfortably with a lot of the women that I that I meet so it's about helping women become more self-aware about where their confidence levels are you know that there's room for work because again, it really varies. You might be really, really confident in how you look, but really unconfident about public speaking. You might be really confident in yourself as a parent, not really confident in the workplace. So it's it's a very, you know, there's a lot to unpack there. Mm. So helping women to recognise where their confidence, you know, there's there's room for them to sort of work on that. Looking at how you project yourself online is a big thing these days. Dealing with those negative voices in our heads, which, you know, again, that's that's what's holding so many of us back, yeah. is trying to find a way of managing those voices and then setting up healthy habits to make sure that hopefully women can sustain this, you know, in the future after the seven weeks of the course. Yeah. I read the information on, on LinkedIn and it looks really, really good. And if people listen to this episode when it comes out, then you yep. should have time to Yep, yep, yep. So it starts on the 2nd of October. So if anyone's interested, they can go to my LinkedIn page and um, there's information about the course there. Yeah, fantastic. And is that the best place to reach you as well, LinkedIn? On LinkedIn, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also have a website, mariaevans.com. One of the advantages about being that much older is I was around at that moment when we were all grabbing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <and> then, <laughs> so, there's quite a few Maria Evans out yeah. there. I'm not the model, sadly, or the estate agent. <laughs> but I do have mariaevans.com um, as my website name. That's good. That's very good. I, yeah. I bet you could sell it for huge. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that uh, yeah but thank you so much this has been really wonderful talking to well, you thank you so much for inviting me yeah and uh, for everybody listening i will put all the information in the show notes so that you can uh, get in touch with maria if you like to thank you so much thank you That was the first episode in this new season after the longest break ever in the history of Stories for the Future. Now we are definitely back on track and I already have more episodes ready to share with you. So just hit that subscribe button again if you had given up, up on me. I will be back in two weeks time with another exciting guest. Talk to you soon.